Hey, so tonight we're going to be speaking, we're going to jump around a little bit in Scripture, um, but we're going to base ourselves in the book of 1 Kings chapter 11, okay? 1 Kings chapter 11. Have y'all, um, y'all ever watched like um, those like house repair shows? You ever watch those? Yeah. Um, so that stuff really interests me. It, like, it really does interest me a lot, it be, mostly because it's something that I can't do. Like, I'm incapable of, like, driving a nail straight. Like, all that manly stuff, like, I, I can't do it. But, man, I can write a mean history paper. <clears throat> so in the apocalypse, I'll probably be the first one dead. But anyway, um, yeah, so uh, my wife and I, we had some friends back when we lived in Huntsville, and they, uh, they would do this house flipping thing, Right? And one of the things that they did was uh, right off the square, there was this big Victorian two-story house, right? It's beautiful. And they were going to renovate it and then rent it out. And they would have been able to rent it out by rooms and would have made a lot of money for them. But the problem was it was in really high levels of disrepair. And they had to, like, shuffle some rooms around to make it, like, single living areas. Does that make sense? And anyway, one day the workers were all working on the bottom floor and they're taking out walls left and right. And without knowing it, or maybe knowing it, who knows, they, they took out a load-bearing wall, right? And literally, the workers had to like dive out of the window as the house collapsed right behind them. Isn't that nuts? Like, thank God nobody died, right? But that freaks me out. And that's part of the reason I'm like scared of like home improvement stuff is because what if I like take the picture off the wall, but the wall falls over, you know, like, is that a thing? Anyway, but what happened was that this house, like the support structure was no longer fit to hold up the rest of the house. Does that make sense? And similarly, right? Hey, segue, look at this. Nice. We find something similar happening in 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 4, right? It says, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us tonight. Lord, we lift you up onto the throne of our hearts, God. Lord, I pray that you would um, convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord, and you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. We believe your spirit can move and speak, and that's what we ask you to do tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, we're going to do a real quick recap. I want to catch everyone up. The last couple weeks, right, uh, first week we compared the Tower of Babel and Pentecost, right? That was pretty cool, right? There's a lot of parallels and sim- sim- uh, symmetry. There's the word I'm looking for, right? That's neat. And then, uh, yeah, so the, the thing we were able to pull out of that was that if God isn't your motive, right, then what you're trying to do is ultimately going to fail, right? Does your life gather or does it scatter, Right? At Pentecost, they had the motive of Jesus behind everything, and people gathered to them. Right? At Babylon, the Tower of Babel, they had the motive of self, and people ran away. Does that make sense? Okay, and then last week, y'all remember what we talked about last week, right? Is that if you don't have the right motive, then what happens next is you start to treat people as objects to be used to further yourself. 
right? We saw Abraham and, and his wife Sarah use and abuse Hagar, whose name means immigrant, right? That's like the only thing anybody said to me afterwards, after that. It was like, I didn't know that name meant immigrant. I was like, cool, that's what you got, huh? Right on. That's okay. I only worked really hard on it. No one cares. Um, but yeah, right? So now, the, the question I want to answer tonight is, why Jesus? Right? I, I've submitted to you and shown you why Jesus should be the center of your life, but why Jesus? Does that make sense? Why him? In fact, my favorite preacher, his name is Winky Prattney, and uh, if y'all... How many of y'all have listened to Winky Pratty before? Just show of hands. Okay, y'all are my favorites, automatically. Gold stars, Chi Alpha gold stars. Bet you didn't know you get those. But you have to wait till heaven. Um, Winky Pratty tells the story of, like, speaking at a university, and he's talking to all these university students, and he's like, hey, like, Jesus is God. You need to follow Jesus. And this kid stands up, and he goes, why Jesus? And Winky's like, well, I'm interested in alternatives, so who do you suggest? And he goes, why not me, for instance? You know? And Winky goes, that's easy. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. Sit down. <laughs> right? So I think that kid actually had a valid question. Why Jesus? Why him? Right? I think his answer was really dumb. Right? But the question was, why Jesus among all of these gods? Why him? Right? So what are the other options out there? We're interested in alternatives, right? We want to seek the truth. So what are some of the other options? In Deuteronomy 4, it kind of talks about some of those. But this is Moses speaking to the Israelites, and he says, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Horeb is another name for Sinai. There's, a, there's the thing that everybody's going to remember now. Anyway. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that comes along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. Right? That's like a really long list, yeah? And so what I want to do is I kind of want to walk through this list and let's talk about these other gods that God says to the Israelites, your head's going to be turned by them because you know we're no better than they are, right? We're made up of the same mud and spirit, right? Amen? Yeah, y'all amen that, all right. So the first thing that God talks about is about not corrupting ourselves by worshiping another image, the first thing he talks about is men or women, right? God brings up mankind or humanity as a possible alternative to himself in the position of God in your life, right? Which is kind of interesting. I had never really thought about that. But this, this idea of mankind as your God is properly called humanism, and basically what humanism, humanism is, is it's the belief that if given enough time, education, or technology, man can better himself. This is like the, the ethos of like Star Trek, right? This is the ethos of the technocrats that you see on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, you know? 
Like, everyone looks to Elon Musk to do something. Hey, get Starlink going so everybody can have the internet, and then man can be better educated, and we'll all be better. You see what I'm saying? And then God talks about animals in nature, right? Whether it be animals or birds or fish. And when nature's your God, you, you just believe that nature and the earth will provide all the answers we need. And this is the ethos, this is the religion of the materialist. This is the religion of the evolutionist. We can learn everything we need to know about ourselves and where we're headed if we study enough of the earth. If we dig enough bones out, if we put all, all the puzzle pieces together correctly, we'll construct the story of humanity and we'll be able to tell what we're all about. Yeah? And then um, the last one he mentions is the stars in the sky. So here's something we need to contextualize this because naturally your mind's going to go, oh, that's like astrology. No one actually believes that, right? Some people do, but, you know, we won't talk about them, right? But to the Hebrew mind, the stars in the sky represented time, the passage of time. How do I know that a month has passed? Well, the moon has completed a full cycle. How do I know a year has passed? Well, the sun just rose at that same point it did last year. That's 365 days, right? How do I know? How do I know that it's winter? Well, you know, the constellation Orion is high in the sky. That means it's winter time. I mean, besides it being cold outside. But you know what I mean. Yeah? And, and the way this kind of ciphers through is that this becomes a fatalism, a religion of fatalism. And fatalism is a really big word, but it, it comes from the concept of Greek mythology, from Greek mythology about the fates, right? The fates. And, and in Greek mythology, it didn't matter if you were a titan or a god or a man. When the fates cut your string, your life was over. And we are just actors on a stage playing out a play. You might call this determinism as well. And then your God is just this, it's just going to happen. There's nothing I can do, so I'll just accept whatever, whatever comes. Right? And then we know that there's some other gods that aren't mentioned in this passage in Deuteronomy 4, but he mentions them later in the book of Deuteronomy, but they're specifically mentioned in Kings. And these are the gods of the Canaanites around the Israelites, the Ashtoreths, the Molochs and the Baals. And if you haven't studied ancient Near East archaeology, uh, you might want to know what they're about, right? So these gods aren't just like piles of rock or stone that people worship, but these piles of rock and stone represent a concept that people worship. Does that make sense? And so you have people that are not giving themselves to the Ashtoreth, they're giving themselves to sex and pleasure and fertility because she was the goddess of sex and fertility. When somebody would place their infant child on the arms of the statue of Molech and then they would burn that, heat up that, that brazen plate that sat in his lap and they would drop the child into that plate and flash fry it. When they would do that, they weren't sacrificing to some god with a bull's head. No, they were sacrificing their children because they wanted power and they wanted success. 
Because Moloch was the god of victory. And then Baal, he was the god of rain and harvest. The Canaanites would say that Baal is the god who rides upon the clouds. And in an agrarian culture, rain and harvest represent wealth. If you have a good harvest, you got a lot of money. So they would sacrifice to Baal in the, in the name of wealth. They don't believe in this dude that rides a chariot in the sky, but they believe in wealth. How many of us have seen people sacrifice their children and their families on the altars of these gods for that one moment of pleasure, that illicit temptation, destroying a marriage, the absentee father that just wants to get that one more promotion, the parents that refuse to talk to their kids because they're too busy working more hours at home to try and earn an extra buck. And here's what we know about God is in Genesis chapter 6, right? It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And then he sends the flood and wipes everything out. What that story, what the flood story is trying to help you see is that when God punishes you for your sin, what he's actually doing is he's removing his hand of protection from you. Because in the Genesis narrative, the skies above was a firmament that held back the chaos waters of primeval creation, right? Remember in Genesis 1-2, it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the chaotic, dark waters, right? And the world was in a state of wild and waste. And then we get all the way to Genesis 6, and we see that humanity is living a life of chaos, that their life is wild and waste. Their God is violence and chaos. And so what God does in the flood narrative is he removes his hand of protection. He lets those chaos waters fall back down on earth to start over again with Noah. He was giving them what they wanted. He handed them over to their God. He handed them over to chaos. You see that? So when God is punishing wickedness and sin, it's not him striking someone, it's him removing his hand. And even right now, sin is crouching at all of our doors, but it is only his sovereign hand that keeps it from overtaking us. Do you see that? And it continues even with the story of the Israelites when they're in the promised land. They... They seek after these foreign gods. They want the gods of the other nations. They want to worship Baal and Moloch and Ashtoreth. And then God gives them to them. He gives them to the gods of those nations by giving them over to those nations. You want to worship Ashtoreth? Well, here's the Sidonians. They've conquered you now. She's all that you can worship now. You want to worship Moloch? Well, the Ammonites have just taken over. And now he's all that you will get to worship. Do you see that? He removes his hand of protection. Isn't that crazy? So in the end, when these people chased after other gods and gave themselves to these alternative gods, they got what they wanted. They got those gods. 
But as the story goes, and as I'm sure you know, those cannot satisfy and those cannot fulfill you. So God will give you over to your God if you choose another one. If you worship mankind, you will keep throwing things into the deep well of humanism. New technology, new way of educating, new way of helping people be better. But no amount of progress or progressive thinking will solve the heartsick issue of mankind. Because we are broken on the inside. And that cannot be educated away. As C.S. Lewis says, it, if you educate someone who is evil, you only create more clever devils. If you worship nature, you'll finally come to the conclusion that, as the poet says, nature is red in tooth and claw. Where do you think the atrocities of the 20th century began? but in the philosophical pulpits of our universities. One of my favorite poets, his name is Steve Turner. He wrote this short little poem, and it says this. If the evolutionist, if, the, if nature is our God, he says, if chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills 10, troops on rampage, whites go looting, bomb blasts school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. If nature is our God, then we can only come to the conclusion that it is survival of the fittest. And why should I care about my fellow man? If you hand yourself over to fatalism, you'll be robbed of the beating heart of Christianity, which is hope. And you'll just fade into hopelessness because there's nothing you can do. And if you give yourself over to the old gods of Ashtoreth, Moloch, and Baal, if you give yourself over to sex, power, and money, you will be like the Israelites and you will be given to your God. And all you'll be left with is your pleasure or your power or your money. Nothing else. Just that in you. And then you will be like Solomon, and at the end of your life, you will say, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Because like my friend's house, these cannot support you. These cannot hold up the weight of your life. So, why Jesus? What happens if you give yourself to our God? And what is our God like? So I'll start with talking about why our God is better. And then let you decide on the second question. Okay? Sound good? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, there's this silly little verse that causes people to panic all the time. Does that make you panic? Does that, anybody, blood pressure just went up? Right? Be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
What a high command that is, right? Kind of missed out on that one in the last 10 minutes. But the thing that people miss is that Jesus is not telling you, he's not just telling you to be perfect, but he's also telling you how his Father in heaven is. So the heart cry of humanity, what is God like? Who is God and what is he like? It's answered there. At the end of chapter 5 in Matthew, that first section of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, everything that I've just said, act like that because that's how your Father in heaven acts. Do you see that? It's really important that we see that. Because Jesus is the perfect expression of God. Jesus lived these things just like his Father in heaven lived these things because they are the same In John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God. So if we take a quick walk through Matthew chapter 5, the first thing that we see is that Jesus is speaking to the crowds. And remember, he's not just speaking to the crowds, but he's describing himself. And he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the light of the world. And Jesus is the light of the world. He himself shows us how to live, and he himself shows us how God is like. And then he goes on and he says, hey, don't, you've, you've heard it said don't murder, but I say don't be angry. What does that say about him? He goes on, he says, look, if you're at the altar and there remember someone has something against you, leave your gift and go and be reconciled to your brother. That means that Jesus, our Father in heaven, the person I'm submitting to you is the only one worthy of your life, is more for reconciliation than you are. You cannot finish saying, I'm sorry, before he says, I forgive you. He's the father and the prodigal son that is searching the hilltops, peering as far as his eyes can see, hoping that someday on the horizon you will be standing there on your way back home. He is eager to have relationship with you, even to the point of taking the blame. That's what the cross was. He goes on and he tells people, hey, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I say don't even lust. That's kind of weird. What is he saying about himself? He's saying he has never and will never desire for you to be someone else. He loves you. He loves who you are. And while he will eliminate sin in your life, he will never compare you to someone else and want you to be more like them. How many of you have struggled in the bondage of comparison? Divorce. He says, the law of Moses says, if, if you're upset with a woman want a divorce, give her a certificate of divorce. It means... He will never abandon you when you displease him. Because in that culture, at that time, if a wife even burned dinner, it was grounds for divorce. That's not the heart of our God, though. He repudiates it. Says it's not God's intent. And he says, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. His love for you is steadfast and true. Your mistakes, the burned dinners, will not cause him to run away. Is that good news? 
He goes on to say, don't, don't swear by the temple or the gold on the temple. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. This means that you can trust him at his word. When he says, I love you and I will never forsake you, you can believe it. You don't have to get God to pinky promise. You don't have to get him to swear on a Bible because he wrote it. But when he tells you that he loves you, he's telling you the truth. And it should be put in your mind beyond a doubt. He goes on and he says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. As Mahatma Gandhi wisely pointed out, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Jesus says to respond with insult, with blessing. And when someone strikes you on the one cheek, you offer him the other. And though we insult him and wound him a thousand times every day, he does not respond like we do. It is by his sovereign hand that we are not subsumed back into the black void of chaos. Not only did God create you, but he sustains you as a creation as well. And that hand stays over you to protect you from the choices that you've made that have broken his heart. Because he doesn't respond like we do. Then he finishes and he says, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is the God that I submit to you as being worthy of your life. Why, Jesus? Because of who he is. Find a more beautiful character in all the tomes of the history of the world, and you will come up short. Jesus stands tall as perfection. Uh, worship team, come up. I want to finish with a quotation from my favorite author, E. Stanley Jones. Some of you may have heard this before. But he says, he, do, he did not merely ask men to turn the other cheek when smitten on the one, to go the second mile when compelled to go one, to give the cloak also when sued at the law and the coat was taken away, to love our enemies and to bless them. He himself did that very thing. The servants struck him on one cheek. He turned the other, and the soldiers struck him on that. They compelled him to go within one mile from Gethsemane to the judgment hall, and he went too, even to Calvary. They took away his coat at the judgment hall, and he gave them his seamless robe at the cross. And in the agony of the cruel torture of the cross, he prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the God that I offer to you to put at the center of your life. Anything else will result in your life crashing down upon you. Only he is worthy. Give up your ambitions. Stop sacrificing to the God of Moloch. 
Give up your pursuit of wealth. Stop sacrificing to the God of Baal. Give up your pursuit of finding meaning and pleasure in relationships. Don't sacrifice to the God of Ashtoreth. Only God is worthy of that place in your life. Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior. So what I want to do is just take a little bit of time to be introspective. You know, we're, we're in a phase of life where we're trying to figure everything out. Who do I want to be? No longer under my parents' house. Who do I want to become? What type of person do I want to be? What, what goals do I have for life? And I, I think that your only goal should be to live like Jesus. And he will provide the rest for you. He's promised it. You can read it. Yeah? So I really want y'all to sit and think, who do I worship? Who do I worship? And if it's not Jesus, why don't you be brave? Come to the front and ask the Lord to be God of your life. Amen.